Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Good afternoon. Welcome to the second part of this week's LPEC Showcase event, Exploring Listed Private Capital. I'm Chief Executive of LPEC, and we're the international group for listed private capital companies. We've got three of our companies presenting today, London-listed Oakley Capital Investments, CVC Credit Partners, also London-listed, and Helsinki-listed Capman. For those of you new to this asset class, I'm going to spend a very few minutes talking about what listed private capital is and why it matters. Listed private capital is a way in which all investors can invest in private companies, particularly smaller retail and private wealth investors. Private capital provides finance to private companies to help them invest and grow. It's an important funding option for growing businesses, uh, an alternative to bank funding or a public market listing. It fills the gap where banks are unable to lend or a public markets listing is unsuitable, often because a company is still not large enough. What listed private capital does is make the private public. Investors can buy and sell these shares in any amount at any time exactly as they would any other share. Investing in private capital would otherwise be confined to large investors, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, or large private foundations, for example. These have the resources to invest large minimum sums directly into big so-called limited partnership funds and don't mind if their money is locked in for five to 10 years. When you buy listed private capital, you might be buying shares either in a listed private capital company that manages investments or in a fund managed by a private capital company or in a fund of funds that works with many private capital managers taking stakes in a range of funds. No two companies or funds are actually exactly alike and each has its own flavor. Some specialize in loans, listed private credit. Others take equity stakes, listed private equity. They may have particular geographic or sector focuses. Some are interested in companies at early stages of development, listed venture capital. Others in companies at a later stage, listed buyouts, something for everyone. So why does it matter that small investors have access to private capital? Well, performance and diversification. On performance, I'll actually leave everyone to speak for themselves today, but I will make a general comment that over the last decade, listed private equity has outperformed global public markets by more than a third. And at the same time, public markets are now providing investors with less and less choice. The number of companies listed on public markets has roughly halved since a peak in the late 90s. Today, private capital is funding companies that have never seen a stock exchange and in many cases never will. Where companies are coming to public markets, most of their growth is happening before they get there. There are now entire special subsectors not available on public markets, technology enablement or other smart industries, healthcare, companies at the forefront in sustainable ESG strategies. Many national stock markets now have sector SKUs that means they no longer provide adequate diversification. But what listed private capital does is make all of this available to all investors strong performance, exciting investment strategies, companies and assets that are otherwise not available. So now to our three companies to talk about how all this happens in practice. First up is Oakley Capital Investments, Steve Tredgett. Steve. Thank you um, very much, Deborah, and good afternoon um, to those that have joined us. Um, as Deborah said, my name is Stephen Tredgett, I'm a partner at Oakley Capital. And I'm going to provide you with a brief overview of Oakley Capital Investments, otherwise known as OCI. So what is OCI? Um, it's the a listed investment company that was established and listed in 2007. It provides investors with exposure to a focused portfolio of equity stakes in high growth private companies. These are established, profitable businesses, typically growing their EBITDA around you know, 20 to 30%. OCI achieves this by committing solely to the funds managed by Oakley Capital. 
So this is a listed direct private equity vehicle in contrast to a you know, some of the others that, that Deborah's mentioned, like a listed PE fund of funds or a listed private debt vehicle. Its closest peers are the likes of an NHG trust or an Apex Global or a, um, a 3i. So what's so great about Oakley Capital? Well, the manager Oakley Capital is focused on taking controlling stakes in small to medium-sized private businesses across Europe in, in three key sectors. Those sectors are technology, consumer, and education. But the clear focus is on digital business models, and we'll touch on that further later. And today, if you own the shares of OCR, you essentially have a stake in each of the 23 portfolio companies that sit within the Oakley Capital Fund. And, and the reason for this relatively ordinary photo of someone working at a laptop is to give you an immediate flavor of the type of companies and themes that we invest in. So this is a student studying an online degree course provided by IU Group. Now, IU is the largest and fastest growing university in Germany, um, which had at the point when we invested it in 2018, 15,000 students. And today it has over 90,000, approaching 100,000 students. And that's thanks to the quality, flexibility, and range of study options the platform makes available to students globally. And those students will typically come from non-academic backgrounds, will be 25 to 35 in age, and will be fitting this around kind of current employment. So, so what makes you know, kind of IU and what I've just described here, what, what's typical of this investment to, to, to the other Oakley investments? First off, it's growth. Well, actually, IU's earnings grew around 70% in the last 12 months. Um, so high growth is a typical factor and is the key method in which we are going to create value is, is through the revenue and earnings growth of these companies. Digital disruption is, is also at the heart of these companies' success. You know, they're taking market share or they're creating a solution that hitherto wasn't available to consumers or businesses. And it's also underpinned, that performance is underpinned, not by economic or cyclical trends, but by long-term megatrends. Like in this case, the growing global demand for high-quality, accessible education. In fact, education can, can actually be you know, kind of counter-cyclical as we consider you know, how these companies are going to, are going to um, perform um, in the uncertain certain times that we currently live in. So how does... Oakley source exciting opportunities like this and what's so unique about its approach. I'm going to do this in relatively quick order so there's, there's lots more I can discuss about it. The key is, is this business founder network. Oakley was founded by an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs in that we're an entity whose culture is that we understand what it is to be a business founder. We understand the support. We understand these aren't straightforward. They are non-compliant kind of rule-breaking individuals. That's you know the essence of an entrepreneur's success um and we work we work well with them um in in, in the crudest description and we now have 25 or more of these individuals that we've backed some of them you know three four times so an incredible source of opportunities an incredible trust with these individuals those individuals have actually gone on to invest in the funds themselves so actually some 300 million euros of the capital invested in the funds has been invested subsequently by the business founders we've had some success with. We're also backing companies that haven't previously been, that haven't accessed previously institutional private capital. So we're bringing more companies into the realm of private capital backing. Importantly, three quarters of the deals we've done have been uncontested. There's been no competition at the time we've invested them. That speaks to the nature of the relationships but it also speaks to the point at which the companies are at. The business founders aren't necessarily looking for an exit. They're not necessarily looking to maximize value at that point. They're looking for a partner to help them on the next stage of their journey. Their companies may not be, and often aren't, perfectly prepared for an auction. Now, the downside to that is that comes with a whole heap of complexity. These companies probably have difficult share registers. They might not have much management information. There probably isn't much in the way of kind of a large pool of you know, senior exec management in the company. Um, and whilst that is, you know, creates risk and complexity, if you can navigate that, if as we are, you know, 
set up and prepared to navigate that complexity, you get into these companies at really attractive entry multiples. Our average entry multiple to date is about 9.4 times EV EBITDA. And that compares to companies that I've already touched on that grow on average their EBITDA at 30%. And that's an important point that I'll, I'll come back to later. I talked earlier about these mega trends. Let's touch on a few. It's important that within our focus sectors, we're investing behind these irreversible long-term trends that are in their relative infancy. And I think sometimes we're familiar with some of these trends within the UK, and we might think of property portals and think, well, you know, we're all using certain digital solutions now, and they become ubiquitous. They may in certain sectors, but there are plenty of areas where they've yet to kind of truly penetrate. And so within technology, that business migration to the cloud is, is very much one that is, you know, still has a lot of white space, a lot of you know, kind of distance to go. And certainly in some other areas within Europe, notably kind of Southern Europe, where it's, it's really only just beginning at this stage. Or there's the consumer shift to online. You know, it, it genuinely has only just begun in some sectors and geographies. I often talk about Italy in comparison to, to the UK. And there's some great comparisons. Car insurance, we own one of the largest price comparison websites in Italy. Car insurance in the UK, 80 to 90% is now arranged online. In Italy, even post the pandemic, um, it's only around 15 to 17% of car insurance that's raised online. Only some 40, 45% of the Italian population has done any kind of e-commerce transaction. I think it's fair to say, particularly with generation shift and with changes in behavior, which are happening, but they're just happening, you know, 10 years behind, you know, countries like the UK and Germany. So that shift is a trend that regardless of the, you know, Italian economy, um, you know, our belief is that as a shift is going to continue. And as I've already touched on, you know, there is the growing global demand for kind of quality and accessible education, that democratization of education that technology is allowing and also will continue, you know, regardless. In fact, in a difficult economic environment, you know, people often, you know, retrain or look for new opportunities, you know, through education. Um, and it's not just capital investment that we're providing here, you know, given our controlling stake, given our partnership with the companies and our, and our um, expertise, we seek to create value regardless of the trading environment. Some of the key ways we, we achieve this is by improving the quality of earnings. This typically involves converting the businesses to subscription or recurring revenue models. There's the digitalization of companies. For example, in the case of Alessi, the designer homewares group that we acquired a couple of years ago, we've transformed its e-commerce offering. And we've grown its online sales from 5% of revenues to 30% of revenues in the last year or two. And this year, now that will drive a doubling of its earnings um, in, in the 12 months. Another one that's absolutely fundamental to us is, is, is buy and build. We've made, we've made 40 platform investments to date. And those platform deals have acquired over 100 businesses between them. We're often entering into very fragmented markets and we're bringing together subscale single product, product companies to create an industry champion as part of that process. So let's focus more specifically on OCI um, and some of those kind of key stats you expect you know, companies like us to put on the screen, uh, NAV per share, that £5.71, and the net asset value that's just over a billion. Importantly, we just crossed over that billion threshold, which I think is important. I think it's scale for listed investment companies, all companies in health. You've become more liquid, more wider ownership, and hopefully in time, you know, you expect to trade more closely to your fair value. Now, we went all alone. The entire, you know, sector has sold off over recent months, and you can see the kind of distance there between the NAV per share and the share price. Now, the one of the key you know, reasons for that set-off, I expect, is an uncertainty around the quality of the NAV. Is the underlying you know, portfolio company still performing and growing? And is the valuation that's applied to those companies still appropriate as it was in you know, December or March? The last time we updated the, 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 the public market was in April when we gave our um, quarterly um, performance to the end of March. And the NAV had grown 6% in the first quarter. In a couple of weeks' time, on the 27th of July, we'll announce our second quarter trading update. And we anticipate outlining you know, a similar level of performance so far this year. 
Encouragingly, we've got 200 million of cash on the balance sheet, and that's cash that's primed, ready to commit to the funds as, as the funds draw down and make investments. So in what we hope to be a period of incredible opportunity, um, the, the vehicle is well set to kind of meet the commitments um, that they've made to the funds. So here's just a bit more of that kind of longer term track record. You see the 6% growth to the pink bar in the first quarter of this year. But more importantly, look at the kind of gathering momentum of the performance of the funds, particularly as now we're a much more mature set of funds with investments that you know we've owned now for three or four years. The compound annual growth rate for the last five years is shy of 20%. And that is a growth rate that we, we expect to kind of, kind of continue um, going forward. And I think this year could be a really defining year for this asset class in general, not just for OCI. If we can demonstrate that we can continue to grow along similar lines, despite what's happened in the public market and despite what's happening in the wider economy, this will be um, a, a particularly kind of groundbreaking year um, for private assets, um, listed private assets, listed private capital, particularly laying to bed the kind of concerns that were raised by the global financial crisis uh, back in 2007, 2008. So what's driving that NAV growth? The large proportion of it, this is, the, this is what drove the 6% growth in, in Q1. The large proportion of it is the growth of the underlying portfolio companies. That is a, you know, an accounting measure, and that is what's driving that 28% average um, EBITDA growth drove 75% of the asset value growth. There is a small amount of multiple expansion as well, and that's typically as a result of realizations in the period or companies that are maturing and are approaching the point of realization. So there's an increasing certainty over the likely exit value of those companies. If you want further reassurance about 14 times being appropriate, I guess there's two things to say. One is, is that on average, since inception, when we've sold an asset, we've sold it at least an average of 50% higher than um, the book value. Uh, and we've done that you know, twice already this year in the teeth of what people will consider to be quite uncertain times. The other thing to consider is it's a crude comparison, but if you compare those metrics to the NASDAQ, let's say, uh, the NASDAQ's growth is half of OCI's average portfolio company growth, and the portfolio uh, average portfolio valuation is, near, is nearly double. It's about 20 odd in the early 20 times. So I think hopefully you know, some quite um, attractive measures. Here's taking the asset value and, and dividing it down by company. What's the purpose of doing this? To show you how evenly, relatively evenly spread the, the division by company is, and also division by our three focus sectors. Notably, you have significant exposure to IU Group, which is probably the, the company we're most excited about at this point in time. Just as importantly, is showing that division really exploring the fact that there's two key characteristics about all these companies. As you'll see, most of them are captured in some way by technology. They deliver their products or services digitally. And if they don't, and they sit outside that central part of the Venn diagram, then we've identified a way in which we can digitalize these companies and bring them into that center ground. The other key stat is that over 75% of those companies enjoy some kind of subscription or recurring revenue, which obviously adds another layer of res resilience to these companies in the current environment. Just to kind of take a quick look at the kind of key factors that we are all naturally you know, concerned around at the moment and the analysis that we're doing to understand the kind of likely impact of these factors on the portfolio. Very briefly, supply chain insecurity. I mean, we're not talking about companies that many of whom have any kind of supply chain. You know, we're talking about digital consumer marketplaces, software as a service, you know, kind of education and ed tech. There's very little disruption to supply chains in the majority of those businesses. Rising inflation, again, in capital-like companies, there's less of an impact that inflation can have on these companies. And in fact, they, they, they as a result, are producing you know, low-cost, disruptive solutions in markets where inflation um, could be having a more material impact um, on you know, typical businesses within that sector. So as an example, you know, we have an online fitness app, which is clearly, you know, potentially could perform well against um, physical gyms in a rising inflationary environment. We also have price comparison websites, which typically perform well in inflationary environments as people become kind of more cost conscious. So there is a revenue driver or there is a competitive driver um, that, that we believe insulates us to some extent from inflation. On the subject of interest rates, 
Um, we, we typically, particularly for private equity companies, have relatively low levels of debt within the companies. These are fast growing companies. The majority of their EBITDA converts to cash. We have, you know, on average about four times EV EBITDA debt within the businesses. Um, and then finally, geopolitical uncertainty. We don't have a single investment within um, Ukraine, Russia, or Belarus to have you know, relatively limited direct impact, at least from the events that are happening there. So if there is a, you know, if the, if the questions that are on our mind at the moment are, you know, how a company is going to survive with all these, you know, kind of potential kind of headwinds, the other one being around multiples. Our, our, our portfolio company, NAVs, based upon, based upon multiples, which reflected the kind of fall in the public markets um, in recent weeks, months, um, over the course of this year. Um, and to, to, to kind of illustrate why there is a lot of confidence in our current NAV and the multiples used, I've just very quickly here identified how we typically approach the valuation of a company over its four years. I've just taken the companies that we've realized to date, the multiples reflect you know, the mix of businesses that we have invested in you know, at that time, but the approach is exactly the same. So one, we get these really attractive entry multiples, I touched on how we do that earlier. We also take the view that there's two points you definitively know the multiple you can apply to the earnings of a business when you buy it and when you sell it. In between, you can speculate and you can obviously have informed views. We take the view that it's much better and more accurate to peg it to that entry um, valuation. So you see in the first year of ownership, the multiple barely changes from the one we've made. And, we, and that's not untypical for us. Over the next two years, the multiple increases, but it's still relatively pegged to the entry multiple. It increases reflecting the growth of the business, its continued success, improved quality of earnings, et cetera. Then interestingly, you move into that final year. And this is the year, the year that you uh, are considering exiting the business. You now know the environment you're going to sell into and the valuation multiple can start to reflect that. It jumps up even more at the point of exit, reflecting the fact that we sell um, at premiums to book. It's a conservative approach. In the world of private capital, you are not incentivized to overstate the value of these businesses. There's no, there's no management field performance fee you get. That is all driven, the performance is all driven at the point of exit. So overstating the value of a company on your book is, um, is, is, not, in, is not in your interest. I guess one of the other points I'm making is there is a lot of white space between the valuation we've managed to get into these businesses at and the valuation of the public markets. Also, as Deborah pointed out in her introduction, there are, in many of these companies, Take, for example, IU Group. There is not a peer group comparison on the public markets. There might be university groups in, in North and South America, but they are very much, you know, large listed campus university groups. And then just to bring to a close, you know, kind of what can we expect share price drivers going forward? Continued performance is going to be absolutely key. And in a couple of weeks' time, we'll see how that's going. If we can maintain this kind of compound only growth rate that we've been achieving to date, and the signs are relatively positive of that, then I think this will be a company that's got a, um, a bright shareholder return future ahead of it. Then there's news flow, always key to driving a share price. You've seen us exit a couple of investments today. You've seen us make some new investments today. And that is activity we expect to continue over the course of the next six to 12 months. We've also increased the regularity of the frequency of our reporting. And we are absolutely laser focused on the quality of our reporting. We're particularly proud that we've now won the AIC best report on accounts now for the um, second year running. And we think that's absolutely key um, to the success of kind of a listed private equity vehicle is to provide as much transparency as possible about what is in the business, what's, what's within the portfolios and the nature of those companies and give people access to those companies. And finally, you know, the board's very much focused on continuing to close the discount. The discounting set actually you know, presents an opportunity to us because we can buy um, shares and cancel them at significant um, discounts, the NAV. And we have an outstanding program which still has 16 million pounds to run on what's already been authorized. And you anticipate that the company will continue um, to pick up where it left off on buybacks and post the trading update when it emerges from the close. So at that point, thank you for listening and I'll um, hand over to Peter. Thanks, Steve. My name is Peter Stalens, and I'm the Portfolio Manager for CVC Income and Growth Limited. For those of you that were on this call uh, a year ago, you will have noticed that the name of the company changed. 
uh, used to be called CBC, Credit Partners European Opportunities Limited, but we did find out that a lot of people didn't really understand what uh, what we were doing. So we changed the name of the company to CBC Income and Growth. And it's, it's fairly simple. We try to deliver uh, income from the coupons we're generating on, on the debt we invest in and some growth because we do invest in some opportunistic debt which we buy at a discount to par in the markets. And then we do see some pull to par over time and that delivers some, uh, some capital growth to investors as well. I'll give you a very quick overview of the CBC group. I assume a lot of you are, uh, are quite familiar with the larger CBC group. We are still one of the largest European private equity investors. You can see the private equity arm was set up in 1981. So we have over 40 years of experience of investing in Europe. And the credit business, which is roughly a quarter of the overall CBC group, was set up in 2005. Uh, so a lot of the members of the team have a lot of experience of investing through credit cycles. Uh, and we are in another credit cycle right now. So um, we've got a, a very experienced team that knows how to deal with this. And on top of that, we can tap into the, into the larger CDC network. Uh, we've got uh, offices, uh, got 25 offices globally. Uh, we've, been, we've got offices in all the major uh, European cities, and they're not just small offices where, I guess, one or two people sit. These are large offices, and we do have a lot of uh, local knowledge. So when we on the credit sites were to invest, say, in, um, in, in, a, in a Dutch company, we can always put a call into uh, the CDC, into the Dutch CDC office, see if they know this company, if they know the industry, if they know management. And if they don't, they probably know somebody who does know uh, this industry. So there's a lot of institutional information within the, within the larger CDC group. A very brief overview of what we invest in. And this is quite a technical slide. I'm not going to go through this in a lot of detail. But the big difference between ourselves and a lot of other credit managers is that we invest in floating rate loans. And these are effectively private instruments. But a lot of um, credit managers that invest in fixed rate bonds, and these are public instruments. So it's a lot more accessible for, for investors to invest in public bonds. However, there aren't that many instruments available to get exposure to floating rate loans. You can see one of the main differences, which is the, the third bullet point here, is the interest. The interest on loans is typically floating rates, i.e. they are linked to the base rates of the local geography. So, for example, in the UK, our loans would be linked to the Bank, to the bank of England base rates. So, in an inflationary environment, the Bank of England will typically hike interest rates, which means that the coupon we're getting on the businesses we lend to goes up. It's just like a floating rate mortgage, effectively, whereas a lot of um, a lot of bond managers, they would invest in fixed rate interests. And, and in, if in an inflationary environment, your coupon effectively loses value because your coupon at some point drops below the level of inflation. And, and you don't want to be in a long dated instrument when, uh, when inflation is, uh, is running very high. So that's why we believe floating rates loans should perform quite well in, uh, in the current environment. I think the second main difference that, that I will briefly touch upon here is that we are senior and secured in the capital structure. So we are typically the top part of the capital structure, and there's usually a layer of equity below us, where most of the private equity funds would invest in that equity. We invest in the top part of the capital structure, which does give less upside, but it's also, there's also a lot less downside. Um, and we also have security over all or most of the assets of, uh, of the company. So again, this is effectively like mortgage. Uh, the bank has security of your house. So if you were to default on your house, the bank takes over the house and they can then sell it in the market. So doesn't if there if someone defaults on, um, on their mortgage, that doesn't mean that that's a complete write-off for the bank. There will always be some recovery. Whereas for Bonds, a lot of these bonds are unsecured in nature, so the recovery is, uh, is quite a bit lower. 
And you can see that on the, on the next slide effectively. So we've plotted over the last five years, and that includes COVID, the default rates and recovery rates for European loans and European high-yield bonds. You can see that over the last five years, the average default rate in the European loan market has been just below 1%, effectively 0.8%. In the European high-yield market, it's been just above 1%, 1.2%. So you could argue these two markets aren't, aren't too dissimilar. However, when you look at recovery rates, which is the yellow line, the recovery rates for loans tend to be around 65 cents in the dollar, whereas for bonds, they tend to be around 40 cents in the dollar. So if there is a default, our loss rates are typically a lot lower than in the fixed rate high yield market. And that's why we think that loans are really interesting instruments at this point in the credit cycle. A, because their coupon goes up when central banks hike rates. So the, the Bank of England has hiked rates from 0.1% in December to 140% now. So that 1.15% delta has just been added to, uh, to our coupons. And the expectation is that the Bank of England will continue to hike. Um, and if things were to go wrong, then our recovery rates uh, would be um, quite a bit higher than, than in the fixed rate high yield markets. And just again, to put it in, in perspective, we've seen we've seen a fairly material sell-off in loan prices over the last uh, over the last two, three months. And some of it is based on fundamentals, i.e., the, the world is slowing down, inflation is hurting the consumer, still supply chain issues. So the, the, the macroeconomic picture doesn't look as good as it did six months ago. But there's also been a big technical sell-off in our space where banks have been trying to delever their balance sheets by effectively selling a lot of loans in our markets. And the supply has been much higher than the demand for loans, which means that the price has come down. And just to, again, to put it into context, so the average price of the loans in our portfolio today is around 85 cents in the dollar. So if you take that uh, 65 cents recovery, uh, into account. So that means if all our loans recover to par, we get 15 points upside from here on top of the coupon we're getting. If all our loans were to default, then you could imagine that the whole portfolio should trade at 65 cents in the dollar. So right now at 85 cents, the market effectively prices in that over 40% of our portfolio will default over the next couple of years. However, if you take into account the coupon, so the coupon on the fund is now around 10%, just to use round numbers. So if you assume that over the next two years, we can still flip that coupon. So that's 20 points of coupon on top of the 65 cents recovery. That's basically 85 cents. So if you take the coupon income into account, that means that our entire portfolio can default and investors still won't lose money. Of course, that's based on the 65 cents uh, recovery, which we've seen historically. Some people could argue this will go down. If you say recovery rates go to 50 cents, um, then 70% of the portfolio can default and investors will, will be break even. So a lot of bad news seems to be priced in at, uh, at these levels here. And if you look on the next slide, this is what some of the large banks expect as default rates going forward in the US and in Europe. And you can see maybe with the exception of Deutsche Bank, who's incredibly negative, most people who know the industry fairly well seem to think loan default rates are going to be anywhere between 1% and 3% of the next one to two years. So the market right now prices in incredibly high default rates, whereas a lot of people seem to think you know what, default rates actually won't be that high. And we actually do think the same because the market is still in a, in a pretty, good, uh, pretty good shape. On the next slides, I've got a quick snapshot of how a typical portfolio for us looks like. So you can see from the bottom two slides that these are fairly well diversified portfolios. So our largest sector is healthcare with around 14%. Uh, but you can see there's a long, long tail of other sectors, and we like to be diversified. And 
the advantage of where we invest, we invest in liquid instruments. So we can sell and buy these loans in a, in a secondary market. So we can easily adjust our portfolio depending on how our outlook of the world is. So in terms of geography, you can see, again, uh, well diversified across Europe. We don't invest in emerging markets, so there's no direct Russian or Ukrainian exposure. Of course, there is an indirect impact. But you can see the current yields on the portfolio is 9.5% in sterling, and that was at the end of May. Since then, the Bank of England has hiked by another 25 pips. So that then effectively becomes nine and three quarters percent. And the consensus is that the Bank of England will keep on hiking at least another uh, two or three cycles. So you could easily see that income go above uh, 10% uh, in the foreseeable future. Of course, uh, euro, is, euro income is a little bit lower uh, because the, the ECB hasn't hiked as quickly as, um, as the Bank of England has. But the expectation is also for the, the ECB to start hiking. So at some point, uh, we will see that the coupon on these uh, European loans go up over time. I think that the final two things I would like to mention on this slide is the kind of companies we invest in. These are typically very large companies. So weighted average revenues across our portfolio is around 2.5 billion euros, and weighted average EBITDA is around 300 million euros. So these are large companies. These are not small companies where if the economy turns a little bit sour, that they will immediately default. These companies have a lot of options available um, if things uh, things do go badly. They can sell some non-core assets. They, can, uh, they usually are backed by very large private equity sponsors who have deep pockets. Um, so these are large businesses. And I would also add that the average leverage across our portfolio is around five and a half times. So again, most... Um, private equity deals are done at an average valuation of call it around 10 times. So our loan to value on average is around 55%. So there's a large equity cushion below us and these value, the valuations of these businesses have to drop by quite a bit before the, the senior secured debt uh, gets impaired. And then on the final slides, I mean, this is a slide that I showed last year as well. This is how our NAV, adjusted for dividends, performs against the FTSE, again, adjusted for dividends. And you can see that in periods of volatility, we tend to outperform equity markets. And that's just fairly simple uh, because if valuations drop, the, the equity, of course, gets impacted first. And valuations have to drop a lot before the debt gets, uh, gets impaired. Of course, there is some mark-to-market volatility in the loans we invest in because there is a, there is a big liquid secondary market. And that's what, what we've seen um, this year. And you can see towards the end of this chart, we have underperformed the, the FTSE a little bit. And that's partially because of the technicals we're seeing in the markets where banks are deleveraging. They, they are selling some of their loans in the markets at a pretty big discount to par. And that means we have to mark our loans there. I mean, there are loans marked in the portfolio that will mature in three, four, five months' time. They are marked at 95 cents. And that should, in theory, be taken out at par in a couple of months' time. So it's really the selling pressure from the banks that has weighed on our market. And on top of that, the, the FTSE has been one of the best performing um, equity indices so far this year mainly because of the, the weak sterling and also the exposure to oil and, and commodities, which has really made the FTSE outperform um, a lot of other equity indices. So um, these are my prepared remarks. Happy to take any questions afterwards, but I'll first pass it on to Linda at, uh, at CAP. Thank you, Peter. Good afternoon from a warm and sunny Helsinki. My name is Linda Tierela, and I'm Director of Investor Relations and Communications at Gapman. And I'm very happy to talk to you about our company, which may be a new acquaintance uh, on the listed private equity scene for many of you. Um, I'll provide a short overview of our company and our business model and, and also go over the earnings logic and present uh, some of the key trends and developments in, in the strategy and the portfolio. 
So Gapman was founded in 1989 as one of the first private equity companies in the Nordics. So this means that we've been active in the market for over 30 years. And we've been listed on the Helsinki Stock Exchange for more than 20 years. So we are a pioneer also in that sense. We have a presence uh, in all of the Nordic capitals, except uh, in Iceland. We have uh, offices in Helsinki, which is our headquarters in Stockholm, Copenhagen and Oslo. And then we also um, have a presence in, in uh, Luxembourg and in London. Currently, uh, our portfolio has around 250 companies and real estate assets. So uh, we cover the full spectrum of private capital from private equity uh, to real estate and to infrastructure as well. We have approximately 270 limited partners as investors in our funds. These are mostly pension funds and, and insurance companies, but an increasing number are also large international investors from the US um, and uh, from continental Europe, UK and from Asia. So the majority of our, of our LPs actually come from outside the Nordic countries and our assets under management are almost 5 billion euros as of uh, the end of March. So investing in Capman's stock, is um, that's actually a very liquid way of accessing a diversified portfolio of unlisted companies, real estate and infrastructure in the Nordics. I'll briefly present Capman's business model and our earning streams, as this differs a bit from the listed direct fund model that many other listed private equity companies follow. So Capman is a listed private assets manager, which means that we manage mostly closed-end funds that invest in private assets according to various strategies. And uh, these funds are organized uh, as limited partnerships and they're not directly owned by Capman. So rather we act as a fund manager and we receive management fee from the funds as well as carried interest. And in addition to, to, to this fund management business, we have a service business that offers private equity related services. The fee component, both from management fees and from service fees is highly predictable and uh, we can forecast that that uh, uh, many years uh, forward. Typically, the funds have a 10-year term and the initial fund size, as well as uh, the acquisition value of the underlying portfolio, determines the, the magnitude of future management fees for the lifetime of the fund. And then carried interest, that's determined based on the success of the fund, and that's paid to us as fund, fund managers then when the fund has repaid the investment, uh, invested capital back to its uh, limited partners, uh, in addition to a hurdle rate. So uh, in addition to managing the funds, we also invest from our own balance sheet, mostly in our, in our own funds, and we do this alongside our limited partners. So uh, the earnings uh, from this business segment that comes from realized returns of the portfolio as well as fair value changes. So Gapman uh, is a multi-product house. This means that our portfolio is extremely diversified, both in terms of sectors and types of assets. We have uh, three distinctive uh, investment areas. These are uh, private equity, real estate and infrastructure. And further, these areas are divided in, into several different investment strategies. So, for example, a real estate uh, business invests in, in both value-added income-focused real estate across the Nordic countries. An example of this is, is uh, hotels. We manage the largest hotels fund in the Nordics. Infrastructure, uh, that's our newest investment area, and we currently have one fund and then have a couple of mandates that we manage uh, in this investment area as well. On the private equity side, this is typically sort of uh, what you think of when you think about private capital. Here we cover the full spectrum except the very early venture capital. So so we do uh, buyouts in, in uh, Nordic mid-market companies. We uh, do more early stage growth investments. Uh, these are, are, are done as, as minority investments. And then we also invest in, in, uh, in sort of transitional companies through our special situations uh, focus. And uh, we don't really have a, an industry focus, but uh, the teams, they pick uh, interesting growth stories or, or, or niche market leaders across sectors that, that they focus on. What all of our investment areas have in common is, is the Nordic market. So, so we invest in exclusively in the Nordic countries. The impact that we have through our investment is quite significant. So these uh, altogether 35 portfolio companies, they have an aggregate of, of 13,000 employees and uh, an aggregate turnover of, of some 2.2 billion euros. 
And uh, if we look at the real estate, uh, the properties that, that we invest in, they have an aggregate square area of 1,300,000 square meters and some uh, more than 6,000 tenants. So we sort of uh, see this as, as, uh, as, as, as the, the overall handprint of our business. As a significant investor, we have a responsibility to the different stakeholders of uh, these companies and, and also for, for the assets that we invest in. And therefore, we've worked quite a lot with our ESG strategy in the recent years. And we have identified three focus areas in terms of sustainability and set ESG targets for these areas, both for uh, our own operations, but then also for our portfolio companies and our real estate operations. So in terms of an environment, our focus is on reaching a net zero economy over years. And uh, we want to do this by committing and then eventually setting science-based targets, both for Capman as a private equity firm, but then also by helping our uh, portfolio companies set a commit to and, and set science-based targets uh, for themselves. And in terms of real estate, uh, in addition to setting science-based targets uh, for, for the, the real estate assets, we also focus on other environmental indicators, for example, uh, sustainable building certifications and, and uh, the number of green leases uh, that we have for, for our properties. When it comes to the social spectrum, we see that having a more diverse workforce and more diverse decision makers is key. And then also having sort of a workforce that is doing well and that's uh, proud to work for the companies that we invest in. And the way that we, we look at this is by monitoring employee satisfaction. So uh, we want to make sure that, that uh, our, both Capman and our portfolio companies that, that uh, we reach uh, employee satisfaction above uh, certain thresholds. And in addition to that, we create a policy and a process for diversity and inclusion in uh, our own operations as well as in our companies. And we also follow uh, job creation for our portfolio companies. And then when it comes to governance, we look at the diversity of, of decision makers through uh, board representation. And uh, we look at integrating ESG factors into decision making. So the way we are doing this is uh, uh, developing the, the employee remuneration to include ESG targets and then to, to develop a process to, to reach equal uh, gender representation, both in management groups and at partner level uh, throughout our organization. And then when it comes to our portfolio companies, we've now set the target to appoint a max 70% of any gender to, to boards and management teams. And uh, this is something that we sort of have as an interim target and uh, moving towards a, a more equal distribution and then in the future. Similarly, we also want to integrate sustainability objectives in the remuneration for the management teams in our portfolio companies. These are targets that, that, that we now set for 2022, and, and we are going to evaluate these ESG targets continuously. And still, we, we do recognize that we are still only in the beginning of, of our ESG journey. But we do think that by helping our portfolio companies set relevant goals, we can achieve a great results uh, on an aggregate level and really make a difference. And one way to illustrate this through an example of how we actually drive uh, ESG action through our portfolio companies. And these two examples are from uh, our infrastructure fund, which is quite natural because the strategy of the fund is to invest in energy and in transportation and, and digital communications industries. And both energy and transportation are quite uh, emission-intensive uh, businesses where there's a lot to gain if we are able to, to get a transition for the business. So, for example, for Norled, which is uh, a ferry operator in Norway, uh, they manage both express boats and, uh, and, and larger ferries that operate in the fjords. Uh, they've set a, a greenhouse gas reduction target of, of 67% uh, uh, from uh, by 2030 from the uh, 2019 levels and they want to become a 2040 uh, or they want to come a, become a zero emission company by 2040 and uh, we're actually quite happy to see that that now already in 2021 
they were uh, almost half of the 2030 objective. So, so that's very, very encouraging to see. And in terms of, of Koivisten Auto, which is Finland's largest bus operator, we are pursuing uh, the more or less the same strategy, but this time on land-based traffic. So here we are helping the company to convert these diesel-driven buses into non-emission vehicles. And this also will significantly reduce the greenhouse gas emissions uh, of, the, of the business. So uh, now I'd like to go over some of the more recent developments in our company and our figures. And looking at the first quarter of 2022, we had a really, really strong performance uh, in almost all, all regards. And, and this is sort of a, a continuation on, of several quarters of very, very strong performance across the board. So assets under management, that was up some 22%. The turnover was up on 26%. Fee profit, that was up 23% from uh, the, the same period last year. And uh, operating profit, that was up 86%. That was mainly uh, due to, to really, really strong fair value gains. So we are very happy with the start for the year and look forward to continuing now, now as we move along. So the growth metrics that uh, were shown on the previous slide those are mainly driven by growth in uh, the assets under management. Uh, the majority of our assets under management, uh, that comes from real estate funds. Uh, so, so that's a bit more than, than 3 billion euros. Uh, private equity funds, that's um, about 1 billion. And then infrastructure, that's sort of still a small but fast growing share of, of, our, of our assets under management. Uh, that's at some 400 million uh, as of end of uh, March. Uh, and in all in all, in all, we have some 4.7 billion euros in assets under management. And the development of Gatman's assets under management, that's a really important indicator for, for future earnings potential. So the um, assets under management, they've increased uh, really significantly in the past five years. And the sources have diversified uh, quite a lot with new investment strategies and funds launched every year. And we have a really strong pipeline of successor funds in uh, all the strategy or all the, the investment areas within private equity in real estate and in infrastructure. So we we uh, we expect to continue this this trend on um, mid to to long term. So then, where does this assets under management come from? Still, uh, some forty percent of our investors come from the Nordics, but we've increased the share of international investors quite a lot over the few years. So the rest of Europe and North America are gaining share here. And pension funds are still the most typical investors, but we also have a lot of, of smaller institutional uh, investors as well, SRLPs. And uh, this is actually something that, that we focused on when, when, we, when we look at our strategy. So broadening the access to capital and, and broadening the LP base has been one strategic ob objective. So moving sort of from these uh, large Nordic institutions towards, towards a more diversified LP base is key. And here, as you can see, we've, we've been able to, to increase that from 10% in, in 2016 to almost 60% in 2021-2022. And this, at the same time, we've also increased the, the share of uh, these sort of smaller Nordic uh, tier 2 and tier 3 investors. And then the other strategic objective that we have is moving from uh, more closed-end funds to different types of funds, such as uh, open-ended and uh, more mandates and, and club-based uh, investments. And uh, the share of, 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 uh, of, of those investments have, have risen to, to almost half of, our, of, of all our assets under management, uh, compared to being just 4% uh, in, in 2016. And the third uh, strategic objective that we have is, is to, to broaden uh, the offering. So uh, having sort of previously been, been very uh, private equity or, or even maybe even buyout focused, uh, a, a buyout focused company, we now are truly a, a diversified private equity uh, multi-product house. So uh, we, we, we have, uh, we, we've, uh, increased especially the real estate and infrastructure uh, service offerings by quite a lot in, in the past few years. And this is uh, this uh, sort of a development in our strategy that's visible also in our figures. 
So uh, if you recall the earnings components that we have, service fees are, are sort of the, the bulk of the earnings. These have grown uh, really significantly in the past few years, so by 17% over the past uh, five years. And uh, similarly, also profitability that's increased by 47% in the past five years. So this shows that that's sort of the, the increased diversification uh, that really pays off. Just a couple of words about the balance sheets. As we invest alongside uh, our LPs and our own funds, we make sure that, that we have a strong strong balance sheet and, and that we're well, well capitalized. Earlier this year, we issued the first ever sustainability-linked bond in Finland. So that was 40 million in senior uh, unsecured debt. This bond was tied to two performance indicators. The first one being having uh, greenhouse gas emissions reduction pathway validated by, by the science-based targets. And then the second one uh, will be to integrate uh, ESG targets into uh, management remuneration. So uh, these targets are fully aligned with, uh, with Capman's uh, ESG uh, targets overall. So looking longer term, uh, we focus on, on four different uh, financial objectives. So the first is, is growing uh, the management company and service business by more than 10% annually. We've done uh, very well here uh, in, the, in the past four years. So uh, and also continued uh, on the trajectory now. In, in 2022, in terms of uh, achieving more than 20% in return on equity, we've done okay over the past three years. But then keep in mind that there was a hit from COVID. So that's also reflected here in the figures. The 2022 figures were, were, were really, really strong so far. And then in terms of equity ratio, we target an equity ratio more than 60%. Uh, we've um, averaged very close to that over the past three years, but then in uh, this year uh, we've been slightly slightly below, but then it's still on, on a very, very solid level. And then finally, we seek to distribute a growing dividend to our shareholders annually. And this is something that we have been able to achieve since uh, 2012. So one of the, the sort of more consistently uh, great pay dividend payers uh, on the Helsinki Stock Exchange. So that's it for me. Um, uh, I'd like to thank you very much for your attention. And uh, now I'm pleased to hand over to Tamsin, who will introduce the Q&A session uh, of this webinar. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Steve, we'll go to you first. Um, in the current environment, are you focusing your attention on more UK investment opportunities, or is there a shift to other countries within Europe? Uh, I, well, the quick answer is is no. I, I think principally because we tend to focus more on the opportunity first. So we have sectors that we're focused on. We find the opportunities, the individuals we are back, they matter to us more. The geography is essentially a, a secondary point there. The reason we haven't invested more in UK in the UK more recently is because it's incredibly competitive. That means, you know, it's very intermediated. It's very hard for us to find value or has been historically. Um, and so it's been less of a, of a region of focus for us, unlike Germany, Italy, Spain, Portugal, France, where we've been a lot more active. That said, whilst we're not predicting any, you know, additional, uh, you know, or greater activity in the UK, clearly the current environment could, you know, provoke more disruption, dislocation, um, the IPO market is clearly not functioning at the moment. And so it's highly possible that more attractive opportunities, you know, become available in the UK. But we're, we're certainly not um, relying on that or forecasting that. Thank you. And Peter, um, what are your sector preferences given the, given the macro outlook? Yeah, we, we can obviously shift our portfolio fairly easily by, by moving from one sector to, to the other. I think... Uh, one space we, we like well at this point in time is, uh, for example, the travel and leisure sector, which was still uh, which is still recovering from uh, from COVID. Um, but there are a lot of opportunities there. All the data points we see point towards a, a pretty strong summer, uh, assuming planes fly, of course, which is uh, which is maybe a different question, uh, especially in the UK here. Um, but, but that's a sector we, we quite like. Uh, we had a call yesterday with a, um, with a cruise operator. They said bookings for this year are packed. 
the bookings for next year are looking very strong, even if they push through price increases. So, so that's the space we like. Uh, we, you've probably seen the slides. We, we like the healthcare sector. Uh, this again, that should be fairly resilient. Um, there's obviously some other sectors where we are a lot more cautious about. I think it's uh, anything which has to do with the consumer actually buying goods rather than services. Um, I think that that could uh, struggle going forward. Uh, but in general, we feel quite happy with the portfolio as it is right now, and, and especially with the way we can shift uh, our, um, our sector allocation. Thank you very much. And we've got another question for Steve. Are you experiencing a slowing of deal activity, or do you expect a slowing in the six months ahead? We haven't. Um, no, I think I think the key thing. I mean, before anyone you know assumes that's the same for all of you know, kind of all asset classes or all private equity. I mean, I, I only speak for you know, our particular experience, and you know, we're, we're relatively small. I mean, we expect to do somewhere in the region of three to six, make three to six investments a year, um, and we might dispose of you know, kind of two to three. So you know, we're we're hardly the litmus for the for the entire market. However. We have not seen a slowing in 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 either investment opportunities or realization opportunities, and I think you know what slows things down is, you know, you you, you see a declining in performance, which obviously makes a, either businesses you, you hold on to a business longer, so you see recovery, uh, or of course if your of your company underperforms, then it becomes less attractive, um, and so you might you might see less interest in it if you if you wish to sell it. Um, clearly, the other thing is uncertainty. You know, if a, if a business's performance is uncertain in the current environment, it's very hard to price that company. And therefore, it's another reason why you start to see a tightening of, of activity. And then and then finally, it's um, liquidity from a kind of particularly from a debt perspective. Well, the, the, you know, this is not the global financial crisis. You know, we are seeing, you know, liquidity. We might see, you know, kind of the cost of debt go up. Um, and then if I focus on, you know, kind of why we're seeing, you know, we're seeing plenty of activity still. If you have companies that are proving resilient, that are performing well, then you know that the interest in those companies is as kind of strong, if not greater, um, than ever. Um, and typically, you you can think of OCI of, or, or Oakley, sorry, doing the messy work, getting their hands dirty in the kind of companies to create much bigger businesses, which then are um, attractive to the much larger global PE houses. You know, we're, we're kind of the PE manager for, for PE managers, um, if, if you like. And we are having extensive conversations with lots of sponsors about the majority of our portfolio. Um, and, you know, the sale of three assets so far this year is indicative of the interest in, in the portfolio as a whole. Of course, you know, conversely, we all know that fund vintages that follow periods of disruption, the economic disruption, are some of the best performing vintages there are. Um, and clearly, as I touched on, you know, talking about the UK, we're already seeing that increased uncertainty, maybe maybe companies that worry about their existing capital structure, maybe a bit of dislocation is leading more people to have, more businesses, more business founders to have conversations now, maybe a bit earlier than they were anticipating. And we're seeing our pipeline of opportunities be as strong um, as it's ever been. Tremendous. Thank you very much. And for Linda, do you also target ethnic or racial diversity or do you only focus on gender equality? Uh, that's, a, that's a very good question. Uh, we only focus on, on gender equality. Um, I, I, I take that this, uh, this question is coming from, from the UK market where things are sort of a uh, maybe historically uh, a little bit different than than here in the Nordics. Uh, here we have sort of quite strong laws uh, preventing us from uh, from from actually uh, gathering data on ethnic diversity. So so it's sort of we can't sort of really really uh, really pursue that um, at all. So so the focus is uh, is therefore uh, purely on 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 gender. No. Tremendous. Thank you very much. And um, for Peter, how do you see the evolution of credit markets from here? Yeah. I mean, credit markets 
typically always go go through cycles. And um, so what, what we've seen over the last uh, the last few months is a, is a big sell-off. And as I guess as Steve alluded to earlier, the, the cost of debt is, is going up for a lot of companies. And that means that always means some some volatility. The supply needs needs to meet demand somewhere. And, um, and and we are getting close to a level where, where we can actually say, okay, well, the cost of debt used to be this, and now now it's going to be that. It, it has gone up. So, but while we are going through one of these repricing cycles, there is there is always volatility in the market. So that's that's what we see now. The other point in the credit cycles is is default rates, and and as I mentioned earlier. Uh, we don't expect default rates to, to pick up materially from here. They, they may pick up a little bit. And of course, there's still a lot of macro unknowns, unknowns out there. Uh, for example, what is Russia going to do with its gas supply to Germany, which could, of course, of course have a big impact on, on the economy. But generally, the, the, the businesses we lend to are in, are in fairly good shape. So, um, I mean, there are different views on where we are in the credit cycle, but we're still... We're still quite positive on, on credit here because a lot of bad news is in the price right now, as I, as I tried to explain earlier. Many thanks. That's tremendous. And I'm afraid we've run out of time. But many thanks, Stephen and Peter and Linda, for great presentations. Many thanks for joining. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.